From the heartland of America and the gateway to the West, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Later tonight, staying positive in these tough times. Looking forward to that. Here's what's happening. I've got a couple recalls for you. Let me pass these on to you. Lupin Pharmaceuticals has issued a voluntary recall of some blood pressure medication due to the potential presence of an impurity According to a notice published with the FDA, the recall includes one batch of 20 milligram quinapril tablets and three batches of 40 milligram quinapril tablets. Call your pharmacy or your doctor if you have any questions. Wegmans has issued a voluntary recall of its products containing microgreens, sweet pea leaves, and cat grass due to potential contamination with salmonella. The items include 1.75-ounce Wegmans Organic Farm and Orchard Microgreens. Just keep your eyes on that one as well. Lots of recalls. U.S. officials said the government is concerned about the surge of COVID cases in China and has raised questions about the transparency of data the country is reporting about the spread of the virus. Japan is now requiring a negative COVID-19 test upon arrival for travelers from China. The U.S. is weighing similar steps. Here we go again. The U.S. House of Representatives is banning TikTok on all house-managed devices, moving to get in sync with the new law banning the app on executive branch government phones amid mounting national security concerns. Here's our expert on such matters, Howard Bloom. Howard, this is a dangerous thing, isn't it? Well, it's quite amazing. Um, The details are that Tuesday, December 27th, the chief administrative officer of the U.S. House of Representatives sent out a notice to all congressmen and women informing them that TikTok was being banished from all phones provided to them or to their staff by the government. But this was just the latest tip, as you know, of a slow-motion landslide. Since 2019, TikTok has been banished one after another by the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and the State Department. In 2020, President Donald Trump tried to make TikTok illegal in the United States, but failed. Then on December 13th, just two weeks ago, three senators, including two who are normally at each other's throats, Republican Marco Rubio and Democrat Raja Krishnamurti, introduced a bill to ban TikTok from operating in the United States, period. But Rubio's and Krishnamurti's Senate bill would also go a giant step farther. It would outlaw any social media companies, quote, in or under the influence of China, Russia, or several other foreign countries of concern. Finally, last Thursday, a massive $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill was passed. The bill repeated that TikTok is banned from federal government phones. Now, why this intense focus on TikTok? TikTok is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance. Chinese law orders all Chinese companies, from infant baby formula manufacturers to airlines, to make sure every one of their assets is available for spying, or military use at any time. In other words, Chinese law says that all ordinary, everyday parts of the economy are tools of the military and spying arms of the Chinese Communist Party. Even the most harmless Chinese business has to do double duty for war-making whenever it's commanded. For example, China has over 196 ferries carting automobiles and passengers across its waterways, but those boats are considered part of China's military machine. Two months ago, the ferries were used to launch assault craft in mass amphibious invasion drills. 
those drills had one very specific target in mind, carrying Chinese troops and tanks on an invasion of Taiwan. But this dual use does not apply only to hardware. It applies to software. For example, let's go back to the example of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. Mm -hmm. If Beijing was about to mount an assault, China's dual-use law means that the Chinese military could track the smartphones of American troops to make sure the attack was a surprise. How? If American soldiers and sailors were carrying their smartphones, and if those phones had TikTok, the Chinese could use TikTok to reveal where every American soldier or sailor was. TikTok could also show whether the Americans were assembled and traveling toward Taiwan. And TikTok could help the Chinese pinpoint exactly where to aim their weapons to wipe us out. Meanwhile, the Chinese and their allies, the Russians, have spent almost 10 years developing nonviolent ways to weaken us, cheap, inexpensive ways without bullets and explosives. They've been turning our heads with disinformation and propaganda. Their goal includes much more than just winning us over to their side. They've been out to sow chaos by turning us against each other. Despite all that, there are some huge disadvantages to ridding America of TikTok. TikTok is the hottest app in the world today. If we don't have a chance to play with it, the odds are very good. We won't be able to come up with a killer app that can surpass it in the marketplace. What's more, in an era of next technology warfare, you are only as good as the computer toys you play with. Take TikTok away from us, and competing nations may well be able to race way past us in electronic skills, outpacing our companies and our economy, not just our military. It's going to happen, though, Howard. They're going to take it away. Thank you. Southwest Airlines still imploding. They received $7.2 billion in federal subsidies for payroll and operations since 2020. However, the airline stranded tens of thousands of passengers around the country on the Christmas holiday and still canceled 5,400 flights in less than 48 hours. Southwest is blaming the failure on a crash of its internal systems that schedule flight crews and pilots. A union for Southwest Airlines flight attendants attributed the meltdown to outdated scheduling systems, which they say should have been upgraded years ago. Investment advisor Mish Sedlock looking at this on a financial aspect. Mish, what a meltdown, huh? It's a meltdown. It's a mess. Uh, Canceled at least 13,000 flights in the last few days. The uh, Southwest CEO, Bob Jordan, is a apologized. Well, I don't know how far that's going to go. The mess still continues. They're still not back on schedule. I don't think they know when they're going to get back on schedule. You know, this is all involving uh, their software called, ironically, Sky Solver. But it really has to do with the way uh, Southwest does things versus other airlines. Every airline was affected by everyone, all of them, this big, massive snowstorm we had. But most of the other airlines run a hub-and-spoke system. Um, Southwest does point-to-point. Now, there's some advantages to -to point-to-point in that it's quite flexible when things are working well. The problem is it is a huge disaster when you have a perfect storm. I think that word is, those words are overused, but in this case, it applies. Now, the question, George, is what to do about it. 
course, Congress is up in arms. Transporta uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is up in arms. Biden is up in arms. And, of course, Senator Elizabeth Warren is up in arms about this, you know, wants to cancel all airline mergers. And, you know, I, I have a feeling that if Congress really does get involved with this, they're going to make it worse. Yep. I wrote a post on this today, and I said, believe it or not, the best thing to do is nothing. And I don't literally mean nothing because Southwest certainly needs to fix, at a minimum, its sky solver system. But by nothing, I mean the government, if they meddle with this, is going to make matters worse. And I was very surprised, George, to find out that Paul Krugman, he's an extremely liberal writer for the New York Times, uh, uh, did a series of tweets today talking about the Southwest disaster, and he kicked it off with, this doesn't look like a simple morality play by greedy capitalists. A lot of the issue was that Southwest does point-to-point, -point, not hub-and-spoke, this left planes and crews stranded more than any other airlines. That's pretty much the conclusion that I came with. But we're going to see. I'm, I'm sure Congress is going to want to meddle in this. They want to meddle in everything. What needs to happen here is just let uh, consumers and Southwest work this out. If consumers don't like Southwest, they will shift away from the airline. This is the second time this has happened with Southwest. Yet, if you look at consumer ratings, Southwest is rated better than a lot of other airlines. So their system works when it works. Unfortunately, it's an absolute disaster when it doesn't. But this is up for the free market to solve, George, not congressional meddling. Thanks, Mish. I'm sure if they took another poll today, Southwest would be way down at the bottom, I'm sure. Are we in another mass extinction? Stick around. Peter Ward will tell us his thoughts next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Peter Ward with us for the first half of the program tonight. Peter has been active in paleontology, biology, astrobiology. Since his Ph.D. in 1976, he has published more than 140 scientific papers dealing with paleontology, zoology, and astronomical topics. He is an acknowledged world expert on mass extinctions and the role of extraterrestrial impacts on Earth. Ward was the principal investigator of the University of Washington's node of the NASA Astrobiology Institute up until 2006, and in that capacity led a team of more than 40 scientists and students. His book is called Under a Green Sky. Peter, welcome back to the program. How have you been? Uh, I've been good, George. I've been traveling. I got off my covid not traveling anywhere, and I've taken three huge trips this year, and it's kind of an eye-opener what the world has become. No flight delays, I trust, right? <laughs> Boy, Southwest, what a Jeez. poop that company is in. Unbelievable. Uh, it we, is. We talk about mass extinctions. How many have we had on this planet? Well, the sort of the party line is that there were five big ones that we you hear over and over, we're in a sixth mass extinction but that's really only during the time of animals the way i count them up if you look at all of earth's history if we are in one now we're in number 10 uh you know there's nothing 
horrible about these things. They change the world. And if we're in one, it's not anything that hasn't happened before. But there's some really interesting sort of aspects to what's taking place in the oceans now that scientists are just now beginning to discover. And my favorite creatures, the cephalopods, the octopus and squid, mm-hmm. seem to be taking over down there. Interesting. Now, what causes mass extinctions? Boy, any number of causes. The biggest, of course, dinosaurs got hit by a big rock from space. Other times, it's lots of carbon dioxide through volcanic emanations. But what we've been looking at mostly is because we have been fishing the oceans so hard for so many decades. It's over the last six decades that fisheries have really removed lots of fish stock. And once you take fish away, those things which compete with them, like the cephalopods, really have taken over. The big surprise, it's been all over the oceans. It's kind of crept up on us. It's kind of like War of the Worlds. You know, H.E. Wells, his monsters were from Mars, were big octopus-like things. I kind of love it. Are mass extinctions healthy for the planet? Well, I don't know. It's just uh, if, if you like biodiversity, no. But if you like to shake things up, it's kind of like getting the incumbents out. You know, after a nice election, all the rascals get thrown out. All kinds of new rascals come in. Um, in terms of humanity, there's any number of species which we don't want to go away. I really want to keep honeybees in the world. I want to keep pollinators. I want to keep the bacteria that we use, the plants use for nitrogen fixation. So, yeah, there's an awful lot of stuff that we humans absolutely have to have if we're going to keep going. Peter, what regenerates the planet after a mass extinction? Well, evolution is really good at taking advantage of empty space. And by empty space, I mean eco-space. Eco-space is kind of like what any organism uses and does. If you go out and have a nice garden and then chop everything down, what comes next? Weeds. Weeds are the kind of species and animals and plants that very quickly reproduce. They produce lots and lots of babies, and they grow really fast. So my vegetable gardens are usually mostly weeds. So I kind of you thin them out. You try to deal with it. Mass extinctions are kind of like thinning the garden, the weeds, and the other stuff. But it's the weeds that come back first. So weeds, we can think of animal weeds or rats, snakes, cockroaches, lots of different kinds of insects, stuff that reproduces fast and fills in where other animals used to be. Peter, what are the telltale signs that show you that a mass extinction is underway? Yeah, as I said, George, I got I got off my butt for a sorry, bad word, but for a while. I've been first time in many, many years not flying. So this year I took three long trips. The first in April was the most exotic and the most difficult. I flew to Australia, spent four days there, and then flew off to Papua New Guinea and went from the civilized portion of Papua New Guinea, if you will, to the wildest outer islands. And I was able to put down deep water cameras and look at the types of animals down starting at 300 feet down to 1,500 feet. So these are deep bottoms, which you think must be insulated from what humans are doing, but they're not. George, the Chinese have absolutely taken over the Pacific. They own it. It's a big lake. Yeah. And part of that ownership is that their fishing boats are everywhere. Every country I've visited over the last few years, which is most of the island nations, 
You always see beautiful Mercedes, BMWs, gorgeous sports cars being driven by the ministries of fishing, by the prime ministers, by the various executives for these countries. The Chinese have gone in. They throw money around. They buy up all the fisheries licenses for the country, and they're fishing out the entire Pacific. Can the oceans really get drained of fish? Absolutely. Really? Especially the deeper you go, the easier it is. One of the big shocks of my life, George, I grew up in the American San Juan Islands, northwest Washington State. And we'd go out in little boats and go put down a herring on a saltwater reel and pull up rockfish. You know, we think of them as there's copper rockfish and there's red snappers, all kinds of things. So the big shock of the last several decades, biologists finally started looking at these fish a foot long, foot and a half, two feet. And some of them were 100 and 200 years old. We were fishing deeper than 100 feet. And once you get in a deep water, the type of biology down there is very different. Most animals, once they're living in a fairly deep water, if you get past your early stages, if you get past the juvenile stages, there's really long life for these fish that are 100, 200, 300 years old. They're the downside for them is they don't ever produce many babies. So you've got very stable populations, not many fish. Any sort of human fishery comes in and very quickly cleans them out. We're used to shallow water fisheries where lots of fish, big schools. But in deep water, that's not the case. And it's the deep water areas throughout the Pacific that have been fished out. What are the obvious signs that the nets are empty? Well, the really obvious sign for me is that for the first time in most of my, my career, I'm wherever I go to these places, part of the work is diving. I've not seen a shark in six years. I mean, I'm going to places where when I was a young man in the 1980s, we were sh- chased out of the water by sharks almost immediately. We're working in front of coral reefs in very warm water. Sharks are always cranky in warm water. The, the sharks are gone. Have they migrated? Have they migrated? So they're eaten. You can find them in... Thailand, you can Bangkok and most of the Asian cities hanging from hooks, sharks in soup. The sharks are eaten. The sharks are taken. And they're not reproducing quickly enough, are they? Nope, they are not. So this opens the door to the weeds. And the weeds of the sea are octopus and squid. So the surprise to me, and I study this animal called the chambered nautilus, they're everywhere down there. It was we, several years ago, actually put them up for protection because their shells have been fished so heavily. But that protection has allowed these things now to breed and breed quickly, and they are taking over. It's it's an entirely new world. It's after the extinction. Is the planet doing this, or are we doing it, the extinction? Well, let's just say the planet is just a dead rock, right? And the dead rock has life growing all over it. We are one of those forms of life, and we certainly have means of perturbing the rest of the animals and plants on that rock. I mean, the planet does nothing. It's dead. But there are many cycles, and you start interrupting the movement of elements from rock to flesh and from flesh to atmosphere, from atmosphere to ocean. Those cycles are perturbed, and as they do, it affects all the ecosystems. 
Peter Ward with us. We're going to take a quick break and come back and chat more with him. We're going to take calls with Peter next hour here on Coast to Coast. A couple of his books include Under a Green Sky. He also wrote a book in 2011 called The Medea Hypothesis. We'll have him explain what that means and what that means to all of us as we continue talking about the possibility of a mass extinction. Peter, of course, was last with me back uh, almost a year ago, January 26th of this year. And this year is almost gone. But we'll be back in a moment with Peter Ward on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie back with Peter Ward. We'll take calls with Peter next hour. Peter, you coined the phrase in your book, Medea Hypothesis, that you wrote back in 2011, that uh, this is your phrase. Would you explain it for us? Sure. Um, I was just reacting to a theory that's been out for many years called the Gaia Hypothesis, G-A-I-A. Gaia in Greek mythology was the good mother. And the Gaia Hypothesis, George, really is the sort of the founding principle of all the New Age and New Age nonsense. Much of it is nonsense, in my opinion. The major tenet of Gaia Hypothesis, it's as believed by many people, is that the Earth itself is a living organism, a great big giant organism, and that the Gaia of our organism mother is going to try to fix up all the problems humans have been doing. So the Earth will heal itself. It will help us get through these rough patches we're doing through industrialization, global warming, all that stuff. And it really is a bunch of nonsense. So kind of in response, the reality when you look at the biological record, I think of life and especially brand new evolved life as a really big, overzealous puppy. Now, I've had puppies. Those tails break glasses. They run around. They run into <laughs> things. They're well-meaning monsters in a way. Um, new, new life, quite often new species that appear, break into ecosystems and run amok. And we can really trace much of the mass extinctions from too much heat on the planet. The death of organisms comes from bacteria, which produce poison gas. So really, the death sentence for many of these mass extinctions comes from life itself. So I coined the phrase the Medea hypothesis as a counter that life itself isn't this wonderful creature that's going to make the world better. I think one of the tenets, and this may sound a little harsh, but I think it's real, any species would love to do what we humans have done, which is co-opt the resources of a planet. Sure. Species compete with one another. There is no altruism in nature. If any other species could beat us out, they would, and it's an imperative. So this idea that there's an altruistic world and that some Greek goddess is going to save us is nonsense. Now, I was interested in the idea the hypothesis was just revised looking at Mars. Um, a group of scientists just came out saying there may have been early life on Mars, but that it killed itself off. And they encountered the Medea hypothesis. It's on Wikipedia. There's a book about it sort of calling me up. And over the last month or so, I've been doing a number of interviews. It sounds to many people deeply cynical. I think it's actually very realistic. Can we get to a point then like Mars where a planet goes into a mass extinction and doesn't rebound? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. That's sad. Um, Well, let's just take the worst-case scenario where— the Ukrainians are finally pushing to the point where they're winning, 
the Russians start unleashing nuclear weapons. One of those gets loose and it's Germany. The Americans have to respond, wholesale nuclear exchange, and the life on Earth. What did it? Life did it. That's very Median. Sure. Suicidal. Very suicidal. Life, in fact, you just put a bunch of rats in a cage and just give them a finite amount of food. They're going to reproduce beyond the point that they have enough food. But let's. Gonna... But if a thousand humans survived, could they repopulate the planet? Oh, sure. And then do the same thing all over again? Yeah. I mean, there was a famous book, you know, The Canticle for Leibowitz, back in the 70s and 80s. Well, yes. Now, let's hope. My, my hopeful thought at the end of this book, I projected that any planet that evolves life will ultimately, the life will kill itself off unless you would develop intelligence. It's the only way out. So let's hope we get there. But we'd have to find the Edisons and the Einsteins and all those people to help us regenerate again. Yeah, but I mean, it, it may actually be not so much the technical ability that we want to regenerate, but maybe a little bit better of living with ourselves. How many world wars have there been in the last hundred years? Uh, we we are have a pretty sordid history of developing technology to the point that it kills humans. And again, life is not this wonderful creature. It's not Gaian. Life is Median. Well, Albert Einstein was asked about World War III, and they asked him what it will be like, and he said, I have no idea, but I'll tell you what, World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Uh, good point. He's a smart guy. He's right about that. You talk about how moons are so important to a planet's growth. Tell me about that. Yeah, I'm just starting to write my book number 21, George. I'm going to redo wow. the, rare, the Rare Earth book we did with Don Brownlee. Um, the Rare Earth hypothesis in the 20 years since we wrote that book still remains one of the most viable. It is that life is certainly probably common in the cosmos, but that it never gets to the point of getting to animal life because there's just so many things that have to go right for a planet to be able to develop oxygen environments. You cannot have animals without oxygen. It just is, it is the molecule that we, allows movement and animals need to move. Animals have big brains, requires oxygen. So there's gonna be a finite number of planets where you can even suspect that life might develop to intelligence. But I'm beginning to think more and more now, what was it about the earth that allowed us to get life at all? Well, number one, it could be that life didn't start here, but it had to start somewhere. So strangely enough, in the 20 years, 25 years since we wrote that book, there has not been a great deal of progress about how life started on planet Earth. It's still a terrible mystery. If you have to have scientific means of producing it, which I absolutely believe, then you have to have very specific conditions. Look, George, we have never developed life in a test tube. All the test tubes, all the chemists, all the advanced stuff that we have, we still haven't taken chemicals and produced a living organism. So it's got to be fantastically hard to do. So we're looking at what conditions on the planet could even come close to doing experiments where you could produce biotic biological chemicals. And it looks like you really can get there if you have a situation where you have a tide going in, going out, going in, going out. A sea bottom dries up. It gets water again. It dries up. It gets water. It becomes this changing chemical back and forth and back and forth 
which the best theorists are thinking this might be the best scenario for producing life from non-life. Why do we have tides? Because we have a moon. How common is a large moon? Well, it certainly isn't common in our solar system. We're the only planet with a moon relative to the size that we have. Um, the extrasolar planets, how many of them have large moons? Our moon was the product of a very, very chance happenstance. The Earth, about 4.6 billion years ago, was hit by a planet the size of Mars. Much of that Mars-sized planet fell into the Earth, but part of it spun out into our moon. So if that's the case, if you have to have such a chance environment, a chance case, and if life is really necessary to have a moon, we're talking about not very much life in the cosmos at all. It's fascinating. It, it, it truly is. Now, what about the theory? You said earlier that the planet is a dead rock. What about the fact that it could be a live organism by itself? Uh, that's a, it's an interesting idea. Why can't it just be a dead rock that is populated by lots and lots and lots of living cells? The rock itself is, is certainly not alive. I mean, by any definition of life we have, the NASA definitions are the best ones. Life can replicate. Our Earth is not making more Earths. Life evolves. Our Earth is changing, but we wouldn't call it biological evolution. But most importantly, life metabolizes. Life is able to use energy and produce more of itself. I mean, you might be able to say that a volcano is producing lava is equivalent to metabolism, but it's nothing like what we see, for instance, a plant through photosynthesis can take carbon dioxide and sunlight and produce living material out of it. That's a pretty special thing, and our planet doesn't do that. Its life does. Peter, how long does an extinction last in terms of before it's extinct? If it happens on day one, how long does it last? Well, those dinosaurs, a lot of us think the dinosaurs, every last one that could not fly was dead within 30 days. Yeah, that went fast. That went really fast. But at the end of the Permian, the biggest of all mass extinctions, and that was caused by repeated enormous, enormous volcanic events. It wasn't the volcanoes that killed stuff. It was the carbon dioxide that caused the planet, the heat, to super, super hot. And the oceans became quite stagnant, hydrogen sulfide. The killer, as I mentioned earlier, comes from bacteria, Hydrogen sulfide produced by bacteria was really the killer of that extinction. But it happened in pulses. Volcanoes explode. Then they go dormant. It might be dormant a thousand years. Mount Rainier, we hope it doesn't come back soon. It might be a hundred years. But the Fermi extinction lasted probably two million years. Every 50,000 years, another gigantic eruption, another wave of extinction. And over this long period, gradually 90% of all species disappeared. We just went through one of the coldest periods uh, in the history of our living planet that we've been around. How could we be in global warming when it gets so cold? Uh, just blame all those humans, those crazy humans and all their factories. Look, a lot of us think that if humans hadn't come along on the scene, we should be coming right back, you know, glaciation. And Art Bell the wonderful Art Bell, as you remember, he was involved with that movie, The Day After Tomorrow. Right, he wrote that book, The uh, Coming Superstorm. The Southern Coldness. Um, he is right that certainly human effects could certainly change the planet, but I think he had it reversed. What we're doing, much more importantly, is causing things to get really, really hot. 
look, the Seattle climate, George, has gone nuts. I mean, we had a foot of snow on the ground last week. Uh, the what, last b- days, Buffalo had, what, 50 inches? Crazy. But the last two days, we've had up to a half an inch of rain every hour. We are having one of these rivers of water, and it's warm rain. So it went from the almost record cold in Seattle. It was down 8, 7 degrees, and now it's up in 50 and just pouring rain. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy, but it's cycling faster, and it's cycling. The amplitude is greater. It is climate I've never seen in my 73 years. I just had a live stage show in Everett, Washington several months ago. Had a great time there. Great area. Oh, it's a lovely area. Come visit next time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Peter Ward with us. Website linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Like he said, he's up to uh, 21 books, Peter. Uh, it will be 21 when I finish this. I better get it going. Good for you. We're going to take calls with you guys. It's much more fun to talk to you than write. Well, but you sell books when you talk to us. Uh, Maybe. Not many, but I do do like to write them. We're going to take calls with you, Peter, next hour here on Coast to Coast. So is any of this that we've talked about so far fixable, or is it out of our control? Oh, that's a great question. Um, It depends on... I don't know enough to know. Um, Certainly, when we think the end is near... Something good happens, and I think in the last 10 years, we all said overpopulation will be the end of us, and yet so many countries are now showing depopulation that it's going to have a real effect on uh, future retirements. We have a lot of people on this planet, 8 billion, as you know, George, and people produce an awful lot of CO2. And by the way, I need to rephrase that. Actually, after every time I've been on your show, my books have sold, and I want to thank you for that. I just meant, in general, I don't sell many, but on your show, it's really been useful in my career. So thank you so much, by oh, the you're way. You're welcome. we got a great audience for you, Peter. You do. So I, I don't know, in this particular case, um, how things are going to end up. I'm hopeful. I mean, we are able to see what the problems are. It seems crazy to me to be having this, this really useless war in Ukraine and Russia at this point when we need all these resources to deal with the climate change that's happening. Let's just hope humanity and that neck of the woods gets a little more sane. We can end the madness and all those poor mothers and fathers losing their sons. And daughters. And daughters. And daughters. And uh, sadly, I think you're right about the suicidal tendencies of humankind. Well, we certainly don't have too good a track record. But on the other hand, here you and I are talking about this. I mean, that's just in this particular case, as we know. And really, but, but how many people do talk well, about enough. this? And people, your show gets out to a huge number of people. Sure. It's, it's like alcoholism. The first step is saying there's a problem. Here we are saying there is a problem that life on this planet, but especially humanity right now, is certainly not the single cause of climate change. The volcanoes do a good business of that, too. But we are certainly involved in some of it. And that, I think, is an absolute true statement. Peter, I've been uh, on this program for 20 years now, and I think most of those 20 years I've battered away at trying to protect our power grid from a solar flare or an EMP pulse attack. And still we can't get anything done with it. Eventually, eventually, I'm convinced one of those two things are going to happen, and we're going to be up a creek. Well, I totally agree. 
I mean, you're absolutely correct. Solar flares are just absolutely underestimated as a problem. But, George, I don't know if you've noticed that the, the human flares that have been going off against the power grid in Tacoma, Washington's. Oh, my God. Van- vandalism. Yeah, absolutely. And then we had the other case. Was it the Carolinas where somebody shot up power? Yep. Yep. And we get these copycat effects. Look, it, people die when power is out, when we have these cold spells. If somebody had shot up the Buffalo power stations, there would have been a mass death. It, it just, it, we have so many problems. Why add to it? Absolutely. And we had the, the, this big freeze. We've had so many people die from the uh, frigid temperatures. Oh, it's madness. And we can expect more and more of that. Look, people come to me and say, how can you say that there's anything such thing as global warming when we see these enormous freezes. But what people don't understand is that as the planet gets warmer, more and more water is evaporating out of the oceans. We are seeing in these cold freezes enormous snowfalls, just as we're seeing in these terrible hurricanes, huge amount of rain. George, I think it's going to be these major rainfall effects that are going to cause more human misery than almost anything else. You might be right, Peter. Peter, we're going to take a short break. We're at the top of the hour, but we're going to come back and take an hour of phone calls with you in a moment. Peter Ward with us as we talk about national extinctions worldwide. 